you for coming to the CMS uh, Colloquium. And uh, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce our speaker today. Uh, I'm Ian Condry. Uh, I'm a professor in Comparative Media Studies and also Global Studies and Languages. I'm a Japan anthropologist. Uh, and I'm very excited uh, to introduce Paul. Um, I guess before I introduce Paul, I'm going to actually plug a, a couple things going on next week to, to consider. Um, I'm, uh, I've got a couple events next week. One at Bartos Theater at 6 o'clock. Uh, which is a bunch of several artists coming together for a panel discussion on value, protest, and visual arts. It's part of my Dissolve Inequality series. Uh, as I say, before we can solve problems, we need to dissolve the structures of power uh, that produce inequality. And so we're going to think about how art and visual arts especially are involved with that, and it's a collaboration with the List Art Gallery. Uh, so come by, it's free, should be fun. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, another project I have going that's also related to Dissolve Inequality is I'm participating in a group called Faculty for Democracy. Uh, we're worried about the current political situation uh, at a variety <coughs> of levels. And uh, as part of that, we want to create a public space for people of different political persuasions, different movements, uh, to come together and occupy a little bit of space in the middle of MIT. So next Wednesday at lunchtime, Lobby 10, uh, right under the dome there, a mobile protest disco uh, will be there. It's a mobile uh, sound unit. Uh, and we'll also be making signs and making buttons and having a place for people to make speeches and listen to protest music as well. Uh, it's a new experiment. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But come on by uh, if you have time and interest. All right, enough about me. Uh, let me introduce Paul Roquet. He's our brand new uh, professor. Just started uh, this year. Uh, at MIT in Global Studies and Languages. Uh, Paul's an expert in media studies uh, and looking at Japan. Uh, and he focuses on the relationship between environment and emotion, uh, especially in Japan, uh, with a focus on how media <coughs> objects uh, increasingly define the interface between these two things, between emotion and the environment. Uh, he has a, his first book is already out. He's the author of Ambient Media, colon, Japanese Atmospheres of Self, which was published last year by University of Minnesota Press. Congratulations, Paul. Well done. Uh, it's a study of how media styles have transformed in tandem with a post-1970s culture of environmental mood regulation. And he theorizes the deployment of calming moods in electronic music, video art, film, and literature exploring how the ambient departs from earlier trends in background music and video. And especially he relates this to a movement in Japan uh, around healing, uh, which is called Iyashi in Japanese. Uh, and this is whole healing culture, healing commercialism, uh, healing movements, uh, healing jobs. Uh, they're very much a part of contemporary Japan. And it's a really interesting book. Um, He's going to be talking today more about his new uh, research, which extends the examination into domains of both experimental animation and environmental sensor technologies, digging deeper into the history of thinking through mood and atmosphere in Japan. His writings have appeared in a variety of journals, including Macademia, Midnight Eye, and the, uh, an edited volume called The Cultural Career of Coolness. <laughs> Uh, before coming to MIT, Paul was a postdoctoral fellow in global media and film studies at Brown University. 
Uh, and he was also a Mellon postdoctoral fellow in the humanities at Stanford. Uh, he teaches courses uh, in, here at MIT, including digital media in Japan and Korea, cinema in Japan and Korea, as well as introduction to Japanese culture. Uh, I should apologize. I have to leave actually partway through the talk. I had another uh, thing that I, before I knew this was going on. Uh, but George, our fellow uh, cms -er, uh, has kindly agreed to help with moderating the discussion. So thank you, George. Uh, so without further ado, please join me in welcoming Paul Roquet. All right, thank you, Ian, uh, for that introduction. And I'd like to thank uh, Andrew Whitaker as well for inviting me to be a part of this series. And thank all of you uh, for making it out here and not getting blown away on this very absurdly windy uh, Thursday we've had today. Um, so my talk this evening examines independent Japanese animation as a site of intensified engagement with the animation technologies uh, making bodies move on screen, but at the same time, a visceral exploration of the way human bodies are made to move in industrial and post-industrial societies more generally. The talk has its origins in an invitation from the editors of the upcoming Rutledge Handbook of Japanese Cinema to write a chapter on Japanese animation beyond anime. I've published a number of essays now on experiments in Japanese animation that fall outside the usual anime context, with its associated discourses of otaku fan cultures, character merchandising, and soft power. While I don't have anything in particular against anime, I've sought to work against the tendency to limit the understanding of animation in Japan to anime and nothing but. Existing as the inverse at the fringes and often in the shadow of anime is Japan's rich tradition of experimental and non-commercial animation. It emerges in the 1960s out of the Tokyo experimental film scene and increasingly becomes prominent in the 21st century thanks to both the formalization of the field in Japan's art schools and the increasing availability of digital animation tools. While inside Japan, many aspects of the anime world are themselves more subculture than popular culture, the tight identification of anime with Japanese culture abroad has allowed it to become a prominent focus for scholars attempting to understand elements of contemporary Japanese society and media more broadly. Not so with the independent animation scene. For one, it seems too individualistic, its aesthetic concerns too personal and idiosyncratic to represent a whole culture, and its audiences, mostly those attending animation festivals and special screenings around the world, too niche and self-selected. Like art cinema and experimental film, the more explicit international address of the independent animation scene also renders it an odd fit within Japanese studies in a period when Japanese popular culture has become one of the dominant, if not the dominant, framework for teaching and scholarship in Japanese media. Unfortunately, that leaves studies of experimental cinema and independent animation to often fall back into older, often romantic notions of an independent artist valiantly pursuing their private projects, outside or even in spite of any larger social context. This tradition can be traced back to P. Adam Sidney's pioneering work approaching the American avant-garde tradition as what he dubs a visionary tradition with filmmakers like Jonas Makis and Stan Brakhage. And this kind of thinking can be traced all the way up through the personal film trend in Japanese video art, for example, in the 80s. It has reappeared more recently in one of the most important books to emerge in Japan on independent animation, Doi Nobuaki's Personal Harmony, 
Yuri Norstein and the Aesthetics of Contemporary Animation, which just came out at the end of last year. What Doi here calls personal harmony, kojin tekina harmony, approaches independent animation like Norstein's as revealing highly individual worldviews operating outside any specific social context, an approach she contrasts with Claire Kitson's work on Norstein's famous Tale of Tales as a window into Russian folk culture. Doi's fascinating study importantly opens up a more inclusive approach to animators' various experiments with space and time, situating independent animation as the exploratory wing of animation more generally. Approaches like Doi's are important for how they refuse to force an animator's work to speak for a larger cultural or historical moment. At the same time, they risk too quickly limiting the focus to an atomized individual creator. Seeking to counter this effect, my approach largely sets aside both the personal and the popular, seeking instead to draw out resonances between the drawn bodies of independent animation and the disciplinary and biopolitical forces shaping industrial and post-industrial societies more generally. Moving away from a focus on individual creators, I take up the challenge here of articulating why independent animation deserves to be an essential part of larger theoretical debates in media studies, in animation studies, in Japanese studies, and even more essentially, as part of a larger project in media theory to better understand the contemporary functions of mediation itself. Experiments with animation in Japan can be found going all the way back to the origins of the art form, but the start of independent animation as a self-conscious field of practice can be marked to the year 1960, when the Animation Association of Three, the Animation Sanin no Kai, composed of Kuriyoji, Yanagihara Ryohei, and Manabe Hiroshi, announced a new trajectory for animation in the country. Animation production had of course existed in Japan since the late 10s, the 1920s, and 1930s, and by the post-war period had developed into a vibrant spectrum of cinematic features and more low-budget television serials. Influenced by the experimental film and animation then being screened in Japan for the first time, such as the work of Canadian animator Norman McLaren, the Animation Association of Three sought to stick out a space for a different kind of animated work. Whereas the existing commercial styles tended to be aimed primarily at children, they would break from the commercial and reimagine animation as a medium for more experimental and avant-garde work, mature themes for an adult audience, to be circulated not in the commercial cinemas or on broadcast television, but through small-scale boutique distributions found on the festival circuit. Internationally, this non-commercial animation community had only just begun to form, with the first animation festival, Annecy, breaking off from the Cannes Film Festival that same year. As Doi notes, this is the first time the English loanword animation would be used to refer to a Japanese animation practice, rather than the more truncated term anime, or older Japanese terms like manga ega, or manga film. This may simply be a peculiarity in the flow between English and Japanese, but I'm going to follow Doi in taking this, as this historical trivia as a compelling provocation. What would it mean if rather than approaching independent animation as a fringe practice, at the periphery of anime more generally, we take it as a central site, a core laboratory for basic research into what the practice of animation is really about. To work towards a more materialist understanding of independent animation, we're going to position the field not simply in opposition to that slippery object known as the mainstream, but rather as a practice with a different relation than anime 
to the social and material environments surrounding its construction. In other words, I propose what independent animation reveals is not the personal vision of an autonomous creator cut off from society, but a different route towards using animation to explore the fate of the subject under contemporary modes of social control and life and livelihoods. In independent animation, this often takes the form of an intimate struggle with the tools of the animation trade, the physical instruments, techniques, environments, and above all, the labor necessary to bring drawings to life. Even with the advent of digital imaging software, which has greatly simplified the image capture and editing process, animation remains an extremely labor-intensive exercise. What distinguishes independent animation is how this labor is always very close to the perceptible surface. The work of the hand is rendered visible in roughly drawn lines, the work of the voice in the intimacy of the recorded soundtrack, the work of time spent traced out in the sheer amount of detail present in every frame. There are no keyframes or other industrial efficiencies present here. Alongside these traces of the animator's body, the immediate material affordances of their environments also reveal themselves. The furnishings of the animator's workspace, the texture and color of their drawing paper, the layered structure of their software. All this is often transfigured into the forms taken by the animation itself, including its narrative space. This sometimes, of course, happens in commercial anime as well. But there, this fundamental grappling with the materiality of animated drawing tends to be glossed over in favor of a different kind of movement, the circulation of the commodity form. In commercial studios, the production workflow usually integrates a wide spectrum of specialized labor, from character designers, colorists, and voice actors, to producers and advertisers. Subcontracted animation teams, often based outside of Japan in countries with cheaper labor pools, are, often, are sometimes called in to work as in-betweeners, filling in the cells between the keyframes produced by the home studio. Whether full or limited, on a prestige or a shoestring budget, commercial animation aesthetics are articulated within the bounds of what can enable this kind of horizontal workflow. Foreground and background layers, computer graphics, and so on may aesthetically cohere, but are designed to be worked on simultaneously by different branches of the production team. Forced to aim for efficiencies in production and a much larger audience share, commercial animation rarely has time to linger on the in intricate labor required to make drawings move. While commercial animation studios might measure their output in episodes and series, independent animators often work for a year or two on a single four to five minute animation work. It's this labor differential, above all else, that allows for a different perspective on animation to emerge among the independents. Solo animators push up against the very limits of what animation can do as a method for redrawing the world. It's this difference in production context, rather than any kind of absolute break in genre or artistic intent, that separates these realms of animation practice. To borrow a distinction from science, while commercial animation focuses on the scalability of applied techniques, the more artisanal work of animators operating alone or in small numbers is often engaged in the essential work of basic research. At the same time, both commercial and independent approaches necessarily respond to larger social transformations. As the important Japanese film theorist Imamura Taihei argued in his pioneering work on Disney in the 1940s, the distributed horizontal labor of commercial animation makes it the emblematic media form of the industrial age. Commercial animation post-Disney 
absorb, absorbs this factory logic of industrial society more generally. And with the rise of television anime in post-war Japan, this, this uh, internalization of industrial models is pushed even further into the aesthetics of the works themselves, particularly when it comes to character design. So going back to the early 1960s, commercial anime characters are often designed from the beginning to be imbued with what Mark Steinberg has called dynamic immobility, the capacity for a fixed and easily recognizable character to move beyond the material constraints of the screen and be reproduced across a large circulation of toys, stickers, manga, and other merchandise, or what in Japan was later called the media mix. On an aesthetic level, this puts a premium on character designs that are relatively graphic and simple to draw, easily recognizable, and above all, merchandisable. The characters often have acuteness that makes them an effective technology for capturing and circulating the attention and affections of fans. Steinberg focuses here on Tezuka Osamu's design for Astro Boy, Tetsuo Anatomu, perhaps still the archetypal anime figure. We can also consider, however, how a body like Astro's not only models a body well-suited for media circulation, but is also in many ways an embodiment of a certain ideal form of physicality for an industrial age. He is made of durable metal, he's atomic-powered, he can fly, he can swap out parts of his body as needed, and he has a far greater capacity for work and a resistance to fatigue compared with his human companions. In the first episode of the series, we learn Astro Boy was designed to replace his inventor's own son, a nine-year-old boy who was killed in a car accident. Astro serves as a physical upgrade, replacing the frail human body with one of industrial strength. As we see in, in the case of Astro Boy, commercial anime often responds to the impositions of industrial society by becoming industrial itself, both in its production and in its character designs. Figures like Astro Boy not only survive, but thrive in an industrial context by leaving the fragility of the human body far behind. In the shift to a post-industrial or post-Fordist context, these commercial anime bodies continue to be upgraded, with, as, as media theorist Azuma Hiroki famously argued with images like these, a database-like ensemble of swappable body parts and costume elements, allowing characters to proliferate for every taste, purpose, and utility. So this is hard to see, but the character is, as Azuma describes it, is decomposed into a series of, of database elements like loose socks, tails, cat ears, etc., that can be mixed and matched as needed. Independent animators in Japan are faced with the same environment. It's the same social context that they're responding to. They're as subject to industrial and now post-industrial conditions as anyone else. But their response is different. In pursuing artisanal methods in an age of mass industrial production, solo animators often push themselves to the limits of their physical capacity. But this isn't simply a question of production methods. If Astro Boy models one response to how to survive industrial and later post-industrial society by becoming industrial yourself, independent animators explore via their characters a very different response to these same challenges. To put it simply, you could say they stay focused on the struggles of the human body within these mechanical contexts. Context. What would happen if Astro's creator, instead of trying to transcend mortality, by shifting his affections to a robust nuclear robot, stayed with the human body and all its limits, vulnerability, and inevitable change. 
Independent animation responds to industrial and post-industrial life by exploring how fleshy, weak, entropic mammalian bodies struggle to survive under industrial contexts of mechanization, automation, and what Michel Foucault has famously described as both disciplinary and later biopolitical bio regimes of control. Unlike the strong, seamless bodies of most commercial anime, independent animators present characters that can barely hold it together, but nonetheless strive to survive in contexts where the mechanization of the environment often seems to be conspiring against them. The animators themselves often show a great empathy for these characters, as the characters' struggle echoes their own fate as solo animators in an industrial age of anime production. At the same time, this empathy is complicated by the uncomfortable fact that animators themselves are also in the business of manipulating bodies, the ones they draw and mess with on the page. Some of the most interesting works of independent Japanese animation reflect on this awkward truth. Not just industrial society, but the animator, too, is in the business of bodily control. To put this in biopolitical terms, the animator holds the power to make live and let die when it comes to their characters. So this, of course, is the famous phrase Foucault uses to, to describe a shift from a, the disciplinary, a disciplinary version of sovereignty, where the ruler retains the right uh, to make die and let live, to a modern regime of population controls and flexible governance reaching deep into the bodies of citizens. The logic of sovereignty here shifts to a demand for individuals to live in ways deemed useful and productive for the state, while simply letting die those who's, those who fail to satisfy those criteria. It strikes me that this formulation also echoes the relation of the animator to the animated. The latter is entirely dependent on the former for the power of life, of movement. And the moment the character is no longer useful, they fall still at the bottom of a drawer somewhere. At the same time, pushed up to the limits of their own bodily capacities and negotiating the demands of a similarly industrialized world, Independent animators are in a unique position to empathetically explore what it feels like to be subject to such demands. This complex line of empathy is present in many of the works of independent Japanese animation. And, together, and today, I want to explore with you a number of pieces that get at this most directly. While independent animation deploys an astonishingly wide range of methods and media, from sand to clay to puppet animation to motion capture, I'm going to limit my examples to fairly recent works drawing on the most prominent contemporary practice, a combination of hand-drawn artworks on paper or increasingly on straight onto digital tablets, and non-linear 2D imaging software like Photoshop or After Effects. In Wada Atsushi's work, we often encounter mechanisms positioning individuals within assembly line structures where characters regulate each other's movements and manipulate each other's bodies. Here's a sequence from one of his early works, Day of Nose from 2005. Note the protagonist's submission to the physical routines he finds himself subject to, but also his short-lived attempt to escape to a more free, more flexible form of embodiment.
So as the sequence opens, as you saw, similarly attired male office workers shift from chair to chair in assembly line formation until they reach an older, bespectacled man at the front of the line. He uses one hand to pinch the nose of each worker, as if checking it for integrity. Our protagonist then follows the fixed path of his predecessors to an adjacent wall where he finds a hole to slip through. This leads to a momentary break from gravity and the monotony of the social ritual as the character floats and swims in a more liquid and freeform space. This doesn't last long, however, before the bubble bursts and he again finds himself locked into a looping mechanism, this time with a group of creatures acting out some kind of ritual around a central black rock. There are sequences like this in many of Wada's works. A character wriggles free of social mechanisms and takes off in what can be called, to invoke the apt phrase from Deleuze and Guattari, a line of flight. A whole vocabulary of physical movement emerges as triggers to these escapes. Slipping, turning away, tumbling, swimming, floating, and falling. This affords brief moments of buoyancy, weightlessness, and relative freedom of movement. The usually limited animation suddenly becomes supple, a testament to the increased level of attention and labor animators devote to these frames. Commercial animation, it might be argued, often revels in similar scenes of bodily transcendence through flight and speed. But in independent animation, these flights of fantasy cannot sustain themselves for long, pushed back as they are by the solo animator's own limited capacity. Within the solitary labors of independent animation, such freedom of movement exacts a high price in time and energy spent. Here's a remarkable scene from Wada's later work, In a Pig's Eye, from 2010, where the weight and labored breathing of this giant pig contrasts with a pair of boys' short-lived enjoyment of a momentary release from gravity. So as with this cut to this grandfather stuck in his ascent of the stairs, moments of free and unrestricted movement in independent animation never seem to sustain themselves for very long before the choreography shifts back to stricter mechanisms of bodily control. I've written elsewhere an independent charcoal animator, Tsuji Naoyuki, who's a feather stare at the dark, maps, the trajectory, maps this trajectory onto the myth of Icarus. Animation's dreams of bodily transcendence fly Tsuji's protagonists right up close to the sun, but the sheer exhaustion of the animator's hand that draws them brings the characters soon crashing back down to earth. Independent animation can stage a flight away from the industrial demands placed on the human body, but in its labor-intensive production, the independent animator is always faced with the desk, the screen, and stacks of drawings which do not evolve or move themselves on their own. Wada's animation introduces an interesting twist into this tension between factory line mechanisms and the free flight of bodies. This is the obvious pleasure his animations take in a fetishistic focus on soft, subtle, ticklish sensations, whether in the fur of animals on the cheek, the hushed, whispered ASMR quality of the soundtrack, 
or the delicate and thin lines of his drawings. He has described his work as fetish-oriented, and these fixations become one strategy for deriving affective pleasure from the incessant repetition of these assembly line setups. Consider this later scene from Day of Nose. across a long line of grandfathers lying on their back side by side. He lies down on the first one to have his head patted by the older man. A flashback shows us his memory of an earlier intergenerational intimacy. Then he rolls to the next, uh, to the left onto the next identical, gran identical grandfather to receive another pat, then the next and the next and the next in an almost but not quite infinite regress. The whole animation, in a sense, aims to isolate the pleasure of physical contact, both within and against these exaggerated social rituals. As we've seen, Wada's sympathy for the subjected body also extends across trans-species lines, particularly to other forms of domesticated animal, like pigs, rabbits, and sheep. Whereas earlier independent animators like Kuriyoji parodied human domestication in works like the human zoo, Ningen Dobutsuen, Wada's work, in contrast, evinces a longing not just for the furry coats of these animals, but also the way they are taken care of, able to reside with dignity despite the human domestications and desires that, limit, that both limit and sustain them. So Wada is quite upfront about his attraction to the foreclosed lives of domesticated animals. His first DVD of collected works includes a bonus slideshow composed entirely of pictures of him posing with different animals at the local zoo. Animality plays out very differently in much commercial anime. Thomas Lamar, for example, has identified what he sees as a biopolitical logic in commercial Japanese animation, working through what he calls a logic of species, mapping human concerns like racial difference onto different species of animated animals in order to articulate a human politics disguised or displaced onto non, into the non-human realm of drawn creatures. Wada, we could say, turns this logic on its head. Rather than replicating human affairs in the animal world, he instead seeks to learn from the domesticated animal and their ability to dwell within bounds, satisfying their basic needs and desires with each turn of the mechanism. This also makes for an interesting inversion of Alexander Kozhev's concept of animalization a term Azuma Hiroki famously took up in his 2001 theory of the anime otaku uh, called the animalizing postmodern in the original Japanese. Quote, according to Kozhev, humans have desire as opposed to animals, which have only needs. The word need indicates a simple craving or thirst that is satisfied through its relationship to a specific object. For example, animals sensing hunger 
will be completely satisfied by eating food. The circuit between lack and satisfaction is the defining characteristic of need." Unquote. For Kozhev, humans who have set aside more complex forms of desire to focus instead on these simpler circuits of satisfaction undergo a process of animalization, a tendency Azuma finds among heavy users of commercial anime. One problem with this term is that it fails to take animals seriously as sentient beings, effectively equating them with simple mechanisms or machines that can either be hungry or not. Instead, Wada approaches domestic animals provocatively not as failed humans, but as creatures with perhaps a different relationship to the social mechanisms of industrial society, one developing alongside and in tandem with humans. His animations build out a space of empathy and cooperation even between these two worlds. Mizushiri Yoriko, the contempor contemporaneous animator to Wada, reveals a similar use of thin lines, and alongside furry animals, she highlights ambiguous points of contact between human skin, food, and manufactured furnishings. Unlike Wada, Mizushiri leans toward materials more often tagged as explicitly Japanese, exploring, for example, the implicit sensuality of the sticky drip of soy sauce, the slide of sweaty, gelatinous blocks of raw fish, the wrapping and unfolding of Japanese-style clothes and bedding, and the pungent humidity of the hot spring in works like Futon, Kamakura, and Veil, which I'll show here. It's not just animals, then, but also the tactile action potentials of objects that fascinate these animators. This, too, appears to tightly reflect in the material context surrounding these works' construction. Making up videos that often accompany these animations, we see the animators laboring in front of one of two desktops, either working with paper placed upon a hard horizontal surface, sometimes a tablet as well, or seated in front of a computer screen, manipulating frames and layers using digital imaging software like Photoshop or After Effects. In both cases, the structural affordances of the tools and the working space are readily perceptible in the textures of the animations themselves. The flat color fields serving as the background for much of this work directly reflect the horizontal plane of the desk or tablet upon which the drawings first appeared. Software, too, makes its presence felt. 
For example, Wada shows us in one video how he selects the color palette for his animations by using the eyedropper tool in Photoshop to pull pigments out of the fibers of his Japanese-style drawing paper. In doing so, he leverages the software to amplify, rather than obscure, the physical materials underlying this animated movement. The work is created in tandem with these tools by leveraging their creative limitations, rather than obscuring their trace in the name of a more full or immersive style. The shimmer of every hand-drawn line, as it shifts slightly from frame to frame, marks not just the human creator, but the presence of the tools that made it as well. So in Wada and Mizushiri's work, the main exploration is often how bodies are conditioned and coordinated with and through larger social mechanisms, tools, and material objects, even as characters find ways to momentarily escape, play, or even find pleasure in the action potentials these things offer. I want to shift now to a set of animations that work towards revealing the space of bodies in more explicitly biopolitical registers. Here, the plane of social intervention into bodies is less on the level of musculoskeletal manipulations and more on a molecular level of cellular transformation, grafting, and topological rupture. This is perhaps most obvious in the abstract wing of Japanese independent animation, including animators like Mirai Mizue and Hiroaka Masanobu. Here's a glimpse of the latter's work, which again mixes human and non-human animals, food, and plant matter. Hiroka's work, there's often this obsession with the rending, melting, and puncturing of the drawn body. The very capacity of the drawn figure to split apart, tear, involute, and transform. At the same time, these rapidly shifting lines occasionally coalesce into recognizable forms, marking the passage between discrete bodies and their molecular dissolution and recombination. A kind of sympathy transpires in those brief moments of recognition, glimpses of a persistent subject that rides the waves of this ongoing transformation. In both Mizushiri and Hiroka's animations, 
along with works from other independent animators like Oyama Kei and Hashimoto Shin, there tends to be a more directly unset uh, they tend to be more directly unsettling to viewers' felt corporeal integrity. They incessantly focus on the porousness, perforation, dismemberment, and dissolution of all drawn forms, placing the human body on a continuum with various kinds of processed meat and plant matter. This repeated rupture of bodily integrity registers the permeability of the body to outside intervention as simultaneously a sublime release and a nauseating decay. Both allow us only the, brief the briefest pause to register the passage from one form to the next. And in that valley between upheavals, they trace out fragile threads of intersubjective emotion and identification. While different animators come at this in different ways, these are, among, these are among the most powerful moments in all Japanese independent animation, a vision of life sustaining itself despite being pulled this way and that by outside forces. The intimacy of these works allows them to register not only the forces that unsettle bodily integrity, but also to point towards moments where emergent forms of affect might lead to other kinds of bio biological potential and interspecies connection. Building from both Negri and Deleuze, Ben Anderson has described this as a kind of biopower from below, the practice of, quote, bearing witness to the forces of an impersonal and yet singular life that refuses to establish a break within life by reference to a norm, unquote. By refusing to adhere to clean distinctions between different normative categories of life, independent animation risks drawing out new lines of empathy even in its dissolution. To further illustrate this tension between a biopower from above and a biopolitics, we could say, from below, in the domain of independent animation, I'll conclude my talk by turning to one final work. Airy Me takes the form of a music video from a song, for a song from Red Rocket Telepathy, the debut album of electronic musician and vocalist Kush, real name Hitotsuyanagi Mayuko. Animator Kuno Yoko emailed Hitotsu Yanagi to propose creating the video as her graduation project for the graphic design program at Tama Art University. The final work, which you'll see parts of, animates around 3,000 hand-drawn illustrations and invents an entire narrative around the song's lyrics, which ruminate on wanting to melt into the atmosphere, dissolving the self completely into the air. Kush describes her soft vocal style here as partly emerging from the need to sing quietly while recording late at night in her apartment in urban Japan. Here too, the environmental limits of an independent production seep into the aesthetic form of the work itself. As both Kuno and Kush have described it, Erimi takes place in a hospital where a doctor is carrying out biological experiments on young children held against their will. The video focuses primarily on the hospital room of one young patient, who in a repeated sequence set to the music's own refrains is visited by a nurse and receives an intravenous injection of an experimental drug.
sense of it here, the camera perspective throughout tilts and swirls from overhead to around the characters and back, tracing the atmospheric mobility of the air itself as it is blown around by the spinning ceiling fan we see at the start and end of the video. The first time through, this imagery cuts to a backstory showing experimental butterfly subjects as well as test tubes filled with experimental liquids ready to be injected and labeled in English with affective states like surprise, chagrin, and lie. In the following moments, the poison that seems to be suffusing the entire hospital condenses into an apple, which is then fed to the patient just before the nurse makes her exit. The second time through this sequence, however, a line of flight is triggered by the nurse's post-injection gesture, an affectionate tap on the nose. So this is all triggered by the, the nose, uh, the tapping on the nose. Uh, a process of rapid mutation and transformation in which the patient becomes a chimera, part plant, part insect, and instinctively begins pursuing the nurse who flees into an underground bunker bathed in vibrant yellow. Here the metamorphosis is strongly reminiscent of the famous uncontrollable mutation scene in Akira in 1988, another narrative centered around children subject to genetic experimentation. Already, however, the line of escape away from the weight and containment of the human body is beginning to break down as the sequence crosscuts to a more muted first-person perspective of the child staring at her own hands and feet, wobbling unsteadily out of bed and towards the door. These two parallel trajectories come to a head as the chimera, now reduced to a flying butterfly head, finally makes contact with the nurse in a surprisingly tender kiss only to have the nurse's brains explode out of the back of her head. Back in the sketchier tones of the monochrome sequence, however, the child finally reaches the nurse for an urgent hug. The animation ends on an ambiguous note with the nurse lying alone on the floor in the center of an empty yellow room. The door to the room closes on its own accord, plunging the animation into darkness.
biopolitical context, particularly in this work, is difficult to miss. A handful of the video's 400,000 viewers on YouTube, writing in English in the comment section, see in the video a reference to the Japanese Army's secret biological experiments on live human subjects during World War II. In a more contemporary context, however, we could also point to recent experiments aimed at producing real-world chimera by mixing cells from different animals together, so that, for example, human organs can be grown inside pigs for later use in organ transplants. In an age of increasing molecular experimentation and biological control, the more viscerally mutable and manipulated bodies of Japanese animation, we could say, are more socially relevant than ever. Importantly, however, Eri Mi doesn't simply present a spectacle of animated transformation. Instead, it's this emerging affective bond between patient and nurse that introduces an unexpected feedback loop into the hospital's experimental routines. The nurse's somber expression in every scene gives the first hint that her role in administrating both emotional care and experimental drugs to her patient is a conflicted one, and we see the male research scientist looming over her elsewhere in the video. It's this combination of affect and bioengineering that triggers the child's unsteady mutation. But it's also what pulls her back into her body and out of bed, rather than allowing her to dissolve entirely into the toxic yellow of her hallucinatory stupor. Eri Mi presents an encounter where two beleaguered humans attempt to express something like human affection and care, despite the destabilizing biopolitical experiments going on around, between, and inside them. Like much of the work I've shown here today, Kuno here implicitly questions how to care for a body reeling from being subject to both musculoskeletal and molecular forms of social control. In trying to find a way out, these animators each turn to a movement vocabulary of turning and tumbling, bodies twisting towards moments of pleasure and grace, but at the same time bringing them close to the edge of collapse. Here at the end of my talk, I'm acutely aware of how much more, of course, could be said about these works, considering, for example, the role of gender, sexuality, ritual, or even sound and color. But as a starting point, I've attempted today to set out a framework for thinking through how independent Japanese animation might offer an alternative approach to imagining the fate of bodies subjected to systems of industrial and post-industrial control. Rather than the gleaming industrial perfection of independent, sorry, of commercial anime character designs, independent animators draw through their own labors to envision forms of physicality more vulnerable, fragile, and finite. Importantly, as I've argued today, this opens up important lines of ethical and effective recognition between humans and non-human animals, even plant matter and other materials. These animations meditate on the invasiveness of the physical disciplines and biopolitical controls socially inscribed on modern bodies at the same time as they find spaces for tracing out potentially redeeming moments of intersubjective encounter. In these moments, the animator themselves becomes a figure like Kuno's nurse, at once enabling the strange deformations of those under her control, and simultaneously making space and leaving time to extend moments of care and possibly even love to these same figures. Thank you.
bring objection, perceived objection, mm -hmm. to sort of this discussion, um, as a lot of these videos sort of involve like the breaking down of boundaries, especially bodily boundaries, um, and the way that objection, while it can be a way that we define ourselves, can also be a form of the control and policing of bodies. Yeah, that's a great uh, term to bring into, the, into this context. I haven't really thought through exactly where abjection might fit, in, but I'm, I'm interested in trying to trace the empathetic relations that these animators developed, even two things that we would normally uh, consider potentially abject, or at least the, the way they're transforming over the course of the works. Um, I'll have to think more about how, where exactly abjection fits in. Uh, I don't have a, a good answer for you right uh, off the top of my head, um, but certainly the the um, the role of animation, particularly, and as a as a medium that can get into things that, if shot, per, for example, in a live action context, would be immediately disgusting or immediately abject, at least when there are normal normative ways of responding. Um, one thing that interests me about the use of color, for example, in these washed out palettes, uh, which takes away on some level or, or counters the, the stickiness and the gooiness of a lot of the images, uh, allows the transformations to take on a, a beauty that they might not otherwise not have, which could open up problematic sort of displacements of, of, of things we might, should, we might need to see, um, but also allows us to sort of relate to it in a different way. So I think that's the space where a lot of these animators are working. Uh, so color is one area, and sound as well, these attention for sounds that are kind of hard to hear, hard to listen to, but also sort of trigger remote emotions and responses that uh, other forms of animation often do not. what you were saying about this as an alternative approach to animation. And a lot of the examples that you were using seem like the kind of thing that we would see at the ISI, um, which is right this um, like annual kind of industry government-sponsored um, event for showcasing new talent in Tokyo. And so I'm curious, I'm curious about that, that kind of tension and like how these examples actually maybe are not oppositional to commercial animation, but fit into like another national or nationalized narrative. So that's one question. And then my second question relates to the, this first question and kind of where you left off. But it seems like sound is really integral to this intersubjective space, right? And, and maybe, maybe the place that objection becomes really relevant is it's not or, or the thing that kind of the film for instructing us to think about objection differently, right, is that it's it's not actually drawing the boundary, it's it's like drawing the bridge, both between the viewer, right, and the and what's on the screen and also um, internal to it. So I just I, I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about sound. Yeah, sure. Um yeah, so the first question, the, the Japan Media Arts Festival, which in its origins, in its original conceptualization was somewhat controversial in that it didn't follow more familiar definition of media art in an American or European context as being the more experimental wing um, of media production, but also included things like anime and manga, and more pop culture elements as well. So everything's presented sort of under this umbrella of media arts uh, within that festival. Um, and that's something that was, you could see uh, utilitarian reasons for doing that, but it does open up an interesting possibility for thinking of something like animation as a practice that, that transverses all these different production contexts, 
And that's something I really appreciate about uh, Doi's work as well, the book that I mentioned at the beginning, is that he's very explicitly trying to get away from an oppositional practice, at least based on genre or narrative or anything about the artistic intent. Uh, acknowledging, for one, that you can't really say artist animation is all the independent stuff. There's plenty of artists and, and uh, equally valuable, valid work in commercial context as well. And so he makes the move, which I follow, of, of going away from genre or content in terms of defining what's going on and thinking about production context as well. So that maybe you can make similar works, but actually the production context is, and the limitations on producing independent work is going to have certain effects, enable certain kinds of work to be done that you couldn't do uh, in a commercial context. So I, I like how that in some ways levels the playing field, but also keeps it open so these things can actually speak to one another rather than pushing sort of independent animation off to the side or thinking it's totally not connected uh, with anime. Uh, and about sound, yeah, I'm still still thinking through. There's, there's certainly a proximity to a lot of the recording, um, especially in WADA, but in a lot of the early works. Um, so this is very breathy, sort of quiet recording. And then uh, Kush, for example, the musician of the last video, has spoken about recording these albums where she's in, a, in an apartment trying not to be too loud and recording uh, certain kind of vocal as a result. Um, and the space that, that develops around that, um, the, the sort of quiet that's, that's felt beyond the, the borders of this very hushed, whispery kind of soundtrack um, really interests me as well as creating a certain kind of intimacy with the animation uh, on the level of the soundtrack. Um, and that seems to carry over, interestingly, even when some of the other works I showed that have more of a composed electronic score um, that are, have a lot more production quality behind them, perhaps, but they seem to sustain that sort of intimacy in terms of using really quiet sounds uh, fading into, into silence often. Um, so that, that sort of acoustic envelope that's created, I think, has a lot to do with the, the kinds of space that's being created as well. Um, thanks, Paul. Uh, I, so I, I, I was thinking about sound a lot, too, as you were showing us these, and like the way in which the sound of what's happening in the animation is the sound of animation, right? It's like the sound of crinkling paper and the kind of sounds that screensavers used to make, like the ones with the fish and the bubbles and, you know, the kind of like sound of these types of technologies mm -hmm. um, or this like scratching of pen on paper. And, and um, but the question I want to ask, and I apologize if I don't know this just because I came in late, um, but I wanted to know a little bit more about method. Like, like, why are you talking about these particular animators? Is it, you know, you showed us the, the, the shot of like the screen and the animation happening. Is it because you have particular like individual relationships with them and so have access to process? Or is it because, you know, are they just like representative of a whole lot of things that are going on? So could you just kind of address that? Yeah, yeah a lot of my interest in this, this particular form of animation um, Partly, as I mentioned, it's, it's one of the more prominent forms, and, and there's a multiplicity of different sort of methods you could focus on here. Yeah. Um, but I was, became really fascinated, especially in Photoshop or After Effects, where it's this layered logic mm -hmm. of uh, not so much paper stacked on one another, but uh, everything has to be in one layer or another. And it's the way these layers relate that becomes crucial to the way space is arranged. Yeah. Um, versus the layer, the flat surfaces of desks or of furniture. Um, that's in the same spaces, often underneath the computers, or in the same spaces where these animators are working. Um, there's something in that, that that seems to resonate quite strongly with these flat color fields against which much of this is happening. And you could kind of just assume that there's no background because they didn't want to bother putting a background there. Um, but when you watch how they're actually working, um, and it gets holds true for a number of animators, 
there's a sense of actually working with that that flat empty space as a not exactly a tabula rasa, but as a, as a space where certain kinds of things can emerge. Yeah. Um, and actually using the frames of the paper and the frames of the software, uh, as well as productive constraints. Um, so when I saw people like Wada actually taking colors out of the paper and, and really trying to bring the, the software and the paper or the, the pre-computer media uh, into conversation with one another, along with the soundtrack as we were just discussing, there's an interesting way and then all of that kind of gets wrapped up into the aesthetics of the works themselves. Um, those were all really, really exceptional. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to watch them. Um, I was interested that like in all of these images of bodies like decaying and exploding and melting and transforming, nothing ever really disappeared. Like the, the, the material components of the body were just transformed into something else. No part of it was ever actually lost. But like in all of that huge, all those huge, beautiful like explosions of the material body, like there was never the material never included blood or any kind of gore. I mean, even in the last one um, with the sort of body horror of the the rib cage exploding out, like it was all very dry, and um, as you had said, like muted and beautiful. Is that a, a, a trend that continues, um, you know, much further beyond the examples that it showed us today? Because it seemed to be pretty consistent throughout all of them. This like lack of blood and and um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a very helpful observation. And maybe connecting with the question of disgust as well, how, how that affect maybe is absent or playing out very differently in these contexts. It's certainly not true that there's no blood anywhere um, in, in everything uh, I've seen in terms of independent Japanese animation more broadly. Mm -hmm. It does tend to be very colorful though, and less than a sort of body horror aesthetic um, or kind of gritty quality to the, to the bloodiness. Um, and that's, I think, one area where there's a, uh, maybe synergy with commercial anime as well. As I was mentioning, sort of uh, anime character designs that don't seem to, to bleed or sweat even, or have other kinds of physical uh, decay or excess. Um, and that is, I think, where the paper almost takes over from the physical. Um, so there's definitely a tension in this connection I'm trying to draw between the, the politics of the human body, maybe the body of the animator, um, versus what in some ways almost becomes the, uh, the body of the paper more than the body of, of actual humans, or the body of the, the pencil uh, on the paper. Um, and that, so that's one direction I think I would try and uh, think through this more of where the blood is. If, if we can see blood and sort of the remnants of charcoal or the remnants of pencil, or even in the question of the software, what does that mean? Yeah. I have a question uh, that is much less sophisticated and complex than what we've been hearing. Um, I'm wondering if all these uh, films are available online, and if I'm sure a lot of us would like to see like related stuff um, or rewatch them. Yeah. yeah um, most of what I showed is either officially available online or there's been a, a great series out of, from a DVD label in France called Carte Blanche, which is a series of Japanese independent animation, I think it's called. Um, it has a number of Mizushiri's works, for example. Um, and there's sort of trailer versions of a number of these works available online as well. Uh, it seems to be going in that direction of animators more consciously. I mean, everyone has to choose how to use online distribution or what to make available for free. Uh, so each, each animator tends to have a different response to that. There's much of it's available online. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, sure. Um, it's a fairly tight community, I think you can say. Um, and I, I totally left out the history and the, the larger context from this talk. Um, but there is a, a fairly clear trajectory going back to the early 60s, as I mentioned very briefly. Um, and through two or three generations of animators up to some of the younger animators that I showed today. And the biggest shift um, in the 2000s especially is when a lot of uh, programs open in art schools in Japan to actually train animators. <coughs> So some of the very important figures of the second generation after Kuriyoji and uh, the first generation, uh, like Yamamura Koji, uh, start leading animation schools and train uh, art animators, independent animators. Um, and those are many of uh, the artists that I showed today. Um, <coughs> and within Japan, I think one of the, the larger groupings, for example, Yamamura Koji and actually Doi, um, the animation critic that I mentioned, started a group that met quite regularly, and that eventually led to a DVD label uh, called CAF uh, that released, for example, Wada's works and started to distribute them. Uh, they met quite regularly, almost as an animation study group, to watch some of the important independent animation from other parts of the world and sort of think through what it meant and what they're doing. So it was a very, very tight-knit community on that level. Um, the other community is the, the International Animation Festival circuit, uh, where a lot of these artists would go to show their work, and that would be the main venue for distributing them. Um, Wada, for example, as I said in interviews, he finds sort of interesting different audiences will laugh or find his work very funny, um, as opposed to just finding it baffling <laughs> in a different, different audiences in different parts of the world. So that, that kind of feedback uh, factors in as well. Um, and it's, it's an open, often a difficult question. I, one, one reason I focused on the the fatigue involved or the, the labor involved is it's, it's also a lot of work to figure out, especially after graduating from one of these animation schools, often artists can continue producing works for a while, but they, then they find either freelance sort of jobs to sustain themselves doing sort of uh, graphic design or smaller pieces for interstitial segments on TV, for example. But it's very, the, the career path is very unclear uh, of how to, to operate in the animation industry outside of anime. Um, so there's a community around that and trying to solve those questions. Whether online distribution is going to be part of that is one question, or DVD distribution, if that's still the primary way, or festivals, or what format it's going to take uh, is, is one thing that the community is sort of discussing a lot. Any more questions? Do you agree? All right, thank you.